It's a principle that's proven true time and time again in the Bible. When God has your back, even the most daunting enemy is destined for defeat. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah explains how this is revealed in the story of Esther as the Jews take arms against their aggressors. From the series, Esther, for such a time as this, here's David to introduce his message, The Extermination of Enemies. And once again, we thank you for joining us. This is the Friday edition of Turning Point. We're heading into a big weekend. Let me just tell you up front that this is important because we want to emphasize your value to the church you attend. And it's time to get to church, time to go to church and be a part of what God is doing. I have a feeling that something's going on in our country. You know what's happened on the college campuses. There's a new movie out uh, that's very powerful from my friend Greg Laurie. But all of this is conditioned upon the people of God gathering. So if you're not going to church, why don't you get back this week? That would be a good thing. We're on television over the weekend, as many of you know, but we never want the television program to interfere with your attendance at your local church. By the way, you have an instrument called a DVR. Capture it, watch it later, go to church. And then um, we'll be back here on Monday to continue our study of the book of Esther. Today we're going to look at the ninth chapter of the book of Esther, which is called The Extermination of Enemies. This is God coming back to deal with those who are trying to hurt the Jewish people. We'll see the whole story today and Monday. And don't forget, there's a resource for the month that you don't want to miss. It's the Promise Code by O.S. Hawkins, 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Can Claim in a Beautiful Gift Book. It's yours for a gift of any size during this month. Simply ask for the book when you send your gift today. Okay, Part 1, The Extermination of Enemies. I read a story recently about a man who was bitten by a dog and was later discovered that the dog was rabid. And the man was rushed to the hospital where tests revealed that he had, in fact, rabies. At the time when this story took place, medical science had no solution for this problem and his condition was incurable and terminal. Sir, we will do all we can to make you comfortable. But I cannot give you false hope. There is nothing we can really do. My best advice is that you put your affairs in order as soon as possible. The dying man sank back on his bed in shock. Finally, he rallied enough strength to ask for a pen and some paper. He then set to work with great energy. An hour later, when the doctor returned, the man was still writing vigorously. And the doctor said, I'm glad to see that you're working on your will. And the patient said, this ain't no will, doc. This is a list of the people I plan to bite before I die. (laughs) (laughs) When I read that story, I was reminded that vengeance and retaliation have been a part of this world from as far back as Cain and Abel. And in the story that we have before us, we have a classic presentation of retaliatory action on the part of the Jews against those who had determined to destroy them. As I mentioned before, Haman had coaxed the king through intimidation into giving him his signet ring, and Haman had written a decree that on a certain day all the Jews in the Persian Empire would be exterminated. Through a turn of events, 
through the ability of Mordecai to take the power of the king and overturn the decree by creating a new one that superseded it. Now the decree has been written that all of those who are intending to persecute the Jews will themselves be killed. And the first 16 verses of Esther chapter 9 is the record of what happened when Mordecai's decree was put into operation. And I want to move through the story as quickly as possible to come at last to the real impact of what we should learn from this. And so let's notice in verse 1 the reversal of power. In this verse we are told, uh, if you look in the middle of the verse, it says, On the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those that hated them. So in one day, everything that had been planned by the wicked Haman has now been totally reversed. And instead of the Persians hunting the Jews to annihilate them, the Jews are now hunting the Persian anti-Semites to take away their lives. Mordecai gave the counter-decree on June 25th, 474 B.C. That decree was carried out on March 7th, 473 B.C. The Jews had most of the summer and winter months to get ready for this momentous day, and ready they were. What Haman had hoped would be done to the Jews is now being done by the Jews to those who had hated them. For a period of time throughout the Persian Empire, it was like a civil war. Two opposing parties ready to leap at each other's throats, each with a legal right to kill one another depending upon which decree they were abiding under. Ahasuerus had literally allowed a civil war to erupt right under his nose. The reversal of power in verse 1. Notice in verses 2 through 4 the retaliation against the persecutors. The Jews had assembled in their cities and as we read a few moments ago, they have gone out now to wreak vengeance upon those who were going to kill them. And it's interesting to note as we read our Bibles that everyone who was involved in leadership in the Persian government who had before championed the cause of Haman, all of those people have now in one day apparently switched sides and they're now over here with Mordecai championing the cause of the Jews. Notice the people who are listed here. In verse 3 it says, All the rulers of the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and the officers of the king helped the Jews. That's the same list of people who just a few days ago had helped Haman. And they had switched their allegiance overnight. You say, isn't that kind of strange? No, that's how politics works. The leadership under the Persian government had decided that it wasn't going to be very profitable to continue championing the cause of Haman. He's out, Mordecai's in, let's jump over the fence and get on his side because that's the side that's ultimately going to win. It's a very interesting illustration of what we see so often in our world today. Haman's letter had truly stirred up the people within the Jewish community and the Persian people. If you look down to verse 16, you can see that 75,000 of these people were slain 
And if you remember the decree, the decree that was given by Mordecai was only permission to go after those who were coming after them. So we might reason that there were 75,000 people within the Persian government, within the Persian empire, who were actively seeking the death of the Jewish community. So this was no small conflict. This was a major uprising. I have a question that comes to my mind that I'll reserve for a bit later, but that question has to do with, is it ever right to retaliate? Let me ask you to think about that for just a moment. Were the Jews proper in their perspective when they went back into that community with a strong sense of vengeance and retaliated against those who had struck out against them both with threat and apparent attempts on their life? I think one of the reasons as we look back on this story that the political system so quickly inverted is that perhaps the Persian leaders in the government remembered something that had happened 65 years earlier. And I'll remind you of that because you all know the story. 65 years earlier, in approximately that same area, Darius the Mede sentenced Daniel to the lion's den. You remember that in the book of Daniel chapter 6? And after Daniel was preserved alive through that ordeal, because Darius couldn't do anything to change the decree, it was the law of the Medes and Persians, remember? Darius didn't want Daniel to be in the lion's den, but he'd made the decree and he couldn't reverse it. And after God preserved Daniel through that ordeal, Darius was so delighted he couldn't sleep all night thinking of what had happened, but when he awoke the next morning and found out that Daniel was preserved, you read in chapter 6, verse 24 of Daniel, let me just tell you what it says. The king then gave orders and they brought these men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children, their wives into the lion's den and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones, Daniel 6, 24. I have a feeling that in the history of the Persian Empire, the leaders who served under Xerxes and had been influenced by Haman knew that story and they figured out if Haman's no longer in and Mordecai's in, we better quickly get on the side of the Jews. And what does the scripture say? They feared who? They feared Mordecai, for he had waxed greater and greater, and it was evident that the power of God was on his life, and there is nothing more intimidating than to be around somebody who's under the power of God and be on the wrong side of the issue. And so these people, not necessarily for spiritual reasons, but for pragmatic reasons, joined in with Mordecai and Esther and became a part of the purging of the anti-Semitic views within the empire. It was quite a purging. Notice thirdly in this text, the record of the casualties. And you will find this in verses 5 through 10 and in verses 15 through 16. Let me just point them out to you. It says in verse 6 that in Shushan the palace, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men. And then of course in the 10th verse, it tells us that the 10 sons of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, were slain. And in verse 15, we are told that 300 men at Shushan were slain. And then in verse 16, we are given the final tally that tells us there were 75,000 men slain by the Jews, men 
who were persecutors of the Jews and intended to do harm to the Jewish people. It is interesting that in the fifth verse, if you'll look down in your Bibles, just note it says they did what they pleased. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? The Jews did what they pleased. What does that mean? It means apparently that they searched out the leading anti-Semites and they did not wait just to defend themselves against them, but rather they took the offensive and they went after the leaders who were after them and did what they pleased. And they killed this group in the palace. And in verses 7 through 10, we're told that Haman's 10 sons were killed. And some who have read this have said, well, that doesn't seem like that's right. After all, they've already been disinherited. Remember, Haman lost everything when Mordecai took over. You remember what happened? If you go back to the first of the eighth chapter, you discover that all that Haman owned was given to Esther and Mordecai. So all of his sons had been disenfranchised. They had nothing Seemed like that would be penalty enough. And now, because of Esther's request, all ten of Haman's sons are hung up in public and desecrated for all to see. One author refers to this particular situation in an attempt to explain Esther's desire for the death of the ten sons of Haman. This commentator has put it in perspective. He wrote, if the enemies of the Jews had been decisively defeated and were willing to leave the Jews alone, then Esther's request to have the ten sons of Haman killed would certainly be classified as vengeful. But if they were still pockets of resistance, looking forward to a second round, then Esther's request would be realistic and necessary, and the exposure and desecration of Haman's sons could be understood as a deterrent to any further rebellion among the anti-Semites. It's an interesting thought. Perhaps I should just pause here for a moment to reflect upon something I want to leave with you a bit later, and that is, it is very difficult for me to believe that a man like Haman could have ten sons who could have any kind of pure attitude toward the Jews when that man had lived for the very day that he could destroy the entire Jewish population in the Persian Empire. I have a feeling that Haman's sons inherited his hatred for the Jews. So we have the people killed in the palace. We have the ten sons of Haman who were killed and their bodies hung out for everybody to view. And then notice in verse 6 it says 500 were killed in Susa, the capital alone. It's interesting that that many people in the capital were apparently trying to destroy the Jews. 500 within the capital city of Susa were after the Jews. And I couldn't help but think of something that is written back in the fourth chapter. Just turn back with me for a reminder. In the fourth chapter of Esther in verse 13, you remember when Mordecai was trying to persuade Esther that she needs to get involved in this whole process? And he told her something that I had forgotten about. But in verse 13 it says, Mordecai commanded to answer Esther and said, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. He was right, wasn't he? Because what does it say in verse 6? There were 500 people in the capital city itself who were bent on destroying the Jewish population. And Esther lived in the capital and there would have been no way she could have survived if they had not taken the offensive against these anti-Jewish persecutors. And then in verse 15 and 16, we have the total of the casualties. 70 
5,000 people died. Many commentators before the time of Hitler considered that number very unlikely. They said there's no way that that many people could have been killed. Then Hitler did away with six million Jews beside the people of many other races and all of a sudden 75,000 in Persia sounded like it might be possible. If you go back in the history books and try to find out the population of the Persian Empire at that time, you discover that the Persian Empire varied in its population from 73 million to 100 million. And the Jews apparently were only two or three million of that 73 to 100 million. And of those, about 500,000 to 700,000 could bear arms. These might destroy 75,000 in battle throughout the entire empire. So that's not an unlikely number in that many people who were against the Jews. And of course, Ahasuerus didn't grieve over losing a million men. In the Greek war that he fought, which we referenced way back in the beginning of this book, remember when he had the party back in the first couple of chapters and he invited all of the people to come to the palace? And that's when he wanted Vashti, his wife, to come and entertain all of his foreign visitors? He was gathering all these people in preparation to go fight a war against the Greeks. And he fought the war. And according to the secular historians, he lost a million men in that war. And it was no big deal to a man like Xerxes, they traffic in the blood of people only in a pragmatic way to accomplish the gain or the means for themselves. So the loss of 75,000 anti-Jewish people in the Persian Empire probably didn't phase Xerxes in the least. In fact, as we shall read in a few moments, he's quite interested to know how it's going and how many people have been killed. He's kind of a sadist in some way. That's the casualties in the war. Notice number four, the request for added revenge. And here we end up with a question about Esther herself. Notice verse 11 through 14 in the ninth chapter. On that day, the number of those that were slain in Shushan the palace was brought before the king. In other words, they told him how many had died. And the king said unto Esther the queen, the Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the palace and the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? In other words, give me a report. Tell me how many people have died. I mean, the guy's got sort of a sadistic curiosity here. And then he says, and what is your petition? And it shall be granted thee. Or what is thy request further? And it shall be done. How many more people do you want to kill? And Esther said, if it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow also according to this day's decree and let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows and the king commanded it so to be done. And the decree was given at Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. Now here is Esther. She's already killed most of the leaders. And Mordecai has been a part of this. And the Jews have had a field day, open season, on all the anti-Semites in the Persian Empire. And it looks like the thing is over. And the king calls her in and says, hey, how's it going? We know how many has been killed in Shushan the palace, but give me a casualty report from the rest of the Persian Empire. And is there anything else I can do to help you? How many more do you want? You want to? And, and all Esther said, well, give us one more day and we can clean this thing up. And so they decreed it and gave the Jews another day and set them loose on the Persians another day and let them go out and wreak havoc upon the Persian haters of the Jews. And some folks have said, you know, this is hard to put together with the gracious, godly spirit of Esther that is so often portrayed in the personality of Esther as she's presented often in, in our study of her as a lady. 
doesn't sound very ladylike, not very meek and, and lowly uh, for a woman to come back to the king and say, I've already killed 500, I want to kill some more. In fact, there's an interesting thing in secular history. It is a note from a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus that records that Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, when he returned home after his defeat of that Greek campaign I told you about in 480 BC, that his wife at that time, this is in secular history, that his wife at that time was a cold and vindictive queen. And of course that's a reference to Esther because when he came back from the war, Esther was the queen. And that would be, of course, an outsider's explanation of what's going on in the life of Esther, that she was cold and vindictive. She stepped in and put an end to Haman's activities. She was able to save her people from their enemies, and she went after the enemies and exterminated them. It is interesting to me that one of the reasons why there was such a thorough purging of these anti-Semites, and especially of the ten sons of Haman, is that there's a long-standing history of that family, as we traced early in this study that goes all the way back to the Amalekites. And if you have time sometime and you want to look this up, go back in your Bibles and read Exodus 17, 14 and Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19. And as you study that, you will discover that there is a tremendous history of God's hatred for this particular people. Remember at the beginning of the book, that Haman is referred to as the Agagite. He is a descendant of the Amalek people who God hated because when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, they came after the Israelites and they destroyed their women and their children. And God said that there would come a time in the future, you can read it in Deuteronomy, that he would literally destroy that people from all the face of the earth. And as far as we know, after Haman was killed, and hung on the gallows that had been built for Mordecai, and now all ten of his sons have been killed, and his posterity has been cut off. That is the end of the people of Amalek. Once and for all, the promise of God concerning that race, that people, has been kept. And it's over, and you will never hear of them again. The request for added revenge. Then let me ask you to notice, fifthly and finally in this regard, the restraint concerning the spoil. Now I want you to note in your Bibles, if you underline in your Bibles, you want to underline a phrase that appears three times in the ninth chapter. In verse 10, chapter 9 and verse 10, it says, And the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, slew they, notice, but on the spoil laid they not their hand. Underline that phrase. On the spoil laid they not their hand. Jump down to verse 15 and notice, for the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together on the 14th day also of the month of Dare and slew 300 men at Shushan. Here's the phrase again. But on the prey or the spoil they laid not their hand. And then in verse 16, and the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives and had rest for their enemies and slew of their foes 70 and 5,000. Here's the phrase again. But they laid not their hands on the prey. God has your back. And he does. That's such a great thought, isn't it? That no matter what's going on, if you have trusted in God and you're walking with him, he has a way of caring for you that no one else can. I recommend him. 
Uh, we'll have some more of this particular lesson, the extermination of enemies, when we meet on Monday. And, uh, of course, next week we come to the end of the book of Esther. Thank you so much for your very kind and encouraging words about this study. And let me remind you again, you can take this study to your own house, to your own small group. Through the study guides and the CD package, you'll have everything you need to conduct your own study of the book of Esther. Ask about it when you go to our website, and uh, you'll find all the information you need. Well, once again, uh, thank you for being with us throughout the week. We hope that you have been encouraged by the teaching of the Word of God. And as I mentioned to you at the beginning, the Friday edition of Turning Point is all about getting you to church on the weekend, motivating you to see the value of being with the other people when the church gathers. I hope you'll be among those who meet in your church this weekend. And we will see you back here on Monday for the next edition of Turning Point and part two of the extermination of enemies from the book of Esther. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, Esther, for such a time as this, please visit our website. There you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of the latest book from leader and author O.S. Hawkins, The Promise Code, 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Should Claim. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions, available in a variety of attractive cover options. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we continue Esther for such a time as this on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. If you want a deeper relationship with God, then learn to trust His promises. The Promise Code by O.S. Hawkins will help you understand how to count on God's promises. And it's yours with a gift of any amount to Turning Point this month. When you give $60 or more, you'll receive the Promise Code set, which includes Esther's CD album, study guide, historical chart, and Bible promises at a glance booklet. Learn more and donate when you go to davidjeremiah.ca. Take the young ones in your life on an unforgettable journey that will get them excited about the Word of God with Airship Genesis Legendary Bible Adventures from Turning Point. Tune in to our monthly audio adventures and join the Genesis Exploration Squad as they travel back in time to experience the stories of the Bible firsthand and discover life-changing lessons. Also available is the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible packed with the biblical content specifically written for kids from trusted Bible teacher, Dr. David Jeremiah. You can also download our Airship Genesis mobile game on your favorite smart device and play as your favorite characters in this puzzle adventure game as the squad experiences the life of Jesus firsthand. Just go to your app store and type the keywords Airship Genesis. For more details or to order a copy of the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible, visit our website at airshipgenesis.com Bible. That's airshipgenesis.com slash Bible. 
George MacDonald was a Scottish poet and novelist whom C.S. Lewis credited with being the primary inspiration for Lewis's own fantasy novels. Like Lewis, MacDonald had a deep understanding of practical Christianity. Concerning worries, MacDonald said, No man ever sank under the burden of the day. It is when tomorrow's burden is added to the burden of today that the weight becomes more than a man can bear. The secret to living a worry-free life is not avoiding life's burdens. It is learning to give those burdens over to God every day so they can never accumulate and become more than you can bear. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's remedy for worry on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.